This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I thank you all for coming tonight. So what I'm going to try to address over the next few minutes is answer the question, can, can MRI aid decision-making in the borderline small left ventricle? So uh, here's the outline for the next few minutes. I'm going to begin with some overview comments about univentricular versus biventricular repair in patients with borderline size left heart structures and the decision-making around that. I'll then present results of a recent research study we did to try to answer the question about whether MRI can help with this decision making. And then I'll show you a case example where some of the results from that research study are applied in clinical practice. So uh, clearly this is a challenging decision trying to uh, weigh the benefits and risks of going down a one ventricle pathway versus a two ventricle pathway. Uh, each road potentially has some pitfalls to it. Uh, going down a single ventricle approach all the way to a Fontan clearly is associated with uh, some risks of morbidity. You can see the list here um, uh, up on the, the left side of the slide here. Um, you're all familiar with those. Uh, that cumulative morbidity uh, results over the long term into uh, uh, mortality. And that's, of course, something that we're trying to improve upon. On the other hand, uh, trying to go down a two-ventricle route in a patient uh, that may not be an optimal candidate runs the risk of the patient uh, developing ventricular and valvular dysfunction, uh, pulmonary hypertension related to insufficiency of the left heart structures and pressure building up and causing that pulmonary hypertension. Uh, there may be a need for multiple procedures over time, and with that, the risk of neurodevelopmental deficits as well as psychosocial challenges that come with multiple hospitalizations and prolonged medical care. So how do we approach these difficult decisions? Well, a key element uh, to this, of course, is a detailed diagnostic assessment. This involves uh, echocardiography, of course, both two-dimensional and three-dimensional data, cardiac catheterization, and many of our patients also get a cardiac MRI study. In addition, uh, when we're making these decisions, we want to take into account some patient-specific factors. For example, if a patient has trisomy 21, that might be a situation where we might try uh, a little bit harder or take some more risks in order to try to get to that two-ventricle repair. There's also this concept of reversibility. If we make a decision to go down one particular road, will we be able to change our minds if things don't go as we had hoped? So um, if, for example, if we make, take some steps toward a two-ventricle repair, will we be able to go back and still offer that patient a one-ventricle repair if things don't continue to develop for the left side? Um, in practice, what we do with these cases is we have a multidisciplinary review. We have a meeting uh, once a week where we review these cases and discuss them. And of course, a key element in all of this is to have parental involvement and buy-in with the decision-making. I can't emphasize how important that is when we're trying to uh, make these decisions. So we have a challenging decision that has some major consequences. And we were wondering whether the use of MRI can enhance this decision-making given its ability to measure ventricular volumes very accurately and reproducible, re reproducibly. Um, also, its ability to measure blood flow 
uh, comparing the right heart circulation with the left heart circulation, would that be any of, of any additive value? And of course, MRI has the ability to assess myocardial fibrosis as well. So um, we recently published a study looking at these factors to try to see whether MRI could help us with decision-making in patients with borderline left hearts. Just want to highlight the work of the first author on this page, paper and my colleague, Dr. Pooja Banka. And I'm going to just briefly present the results of that study to you. So this was a retrospective study. And in this uh, group, we had two anatomic classifications, two sets of patients, really. The first was patients with borderline left heart structures. Um, and the second group was patients with a right dominant atrioventricular canal defect. If patients had a conal truncal abnormality, such as transposition of the great arteries or double outlet right ventricle, they were excluded from the study. In addition, all the patients in this study, there had to be some uncertainty amongst the care team regarding uh, whether or not the left heart could support a biventricular circulation. And the final inclusion criteria is all the patients had to have had a CMR prior to the surgical or catheterization procedure that converted them from a one ventricle to two ventricle circulation because we wanted the, the before, right before the procedure, and then we were going to assess the outcome of those surgical uh, interventions and see uh, which parameters would pr predict pr uh, success in that two-ventricle conversion. So let me deal with each anatomic group separately. So we're going to begin with the borderline hypoplastic left heart group. You can see an example of a four-chamber view uh, up on the screen here. You've got a hypoplastic mitral valve. The distal leaflets are tethered down. The left ventricle is small. You can see it doesn't reach the apex. You have some mitral regurgitation in a dilated left atrium. This is just an example of one of the patients in the cohort. So in this group, we had a total of 22 patients. The median age at the time of CMR was 39 months, but note there was a fairly broad range uh, in, the, in the age group here, uh, right before they had their uh, surgical procedure to convert them. Um, their circulation at the time of the CMR ranged all across the spectrum of different uh, single ventricle palliations. So there were three that were on prostaglandins with no prior surgical or catheter intervention. There were three that had undergone their stage one. The majority of the patients, uh, 15 of them, had already had their bidirectional glen, and there was one patient who had completed their Fontan procedure. So it's also important to note that 17 of the 22 patients had had a prior procedure to increase LV flow. More specifically, 13 had an additional source of pulmonary flow put in, such as a Blalock-Tausig shunt or an RV to PA conduit, um, and 16 had a, their ASD restricted, and many of the patients had both of these things done. So let me just pause here for a second just to make sure you're following what, uh, what I just said there. So, so for example, Here's a patient with borderline left heart structures who's undergone their stage one and also a Glenn procedure. So for example, the, the procedures that are being done to recruit the left side could include an RV to PA connection that's going to increase uh, the blood flow to the pulmonary arteries, in, to the lungs, and also back to the left atrium. And then patients often had their atrial septum restricted, um, and as a result of that, increased blood was pushed into the left ventricle to help promote growth. All right, so let's return to our patient cohort. So they had their MRIs, then they underwent their uh, biventricular conversion procedure, and we had a medium, median post-op follow-up from that conversion procedure of 40 months. And uh, at last follow-up, we had 16 of the uh, 22 patients with a biventricular circulation, 
and the other six were unsuccessful conversions. Specifically, there were three deaths, two takedowns to a one ventricle circulation, and one patient underwent heart transplant. So then when we looked back at the CMR predictors, we looked to see which imaging parameters were associated with transplant-free biventricular survival over that follow-up period. So looking at the CMR parameters, the things that came out as significant were increased left ventricular end diastolic volume. So let me refer you over here to the graph. We have end diastolic volume on the vertical axis, and then we have uh, the two outcome groups, those with a successful uh, biventricular conversion uh, at last follow-up, and those um, who uh, didn't uh, have transplant-free biventricular survival over here in the no group. And you can see uh, that the volume was st uh, statistically significantly larger than in the successful group. Similarly, those patients with an increased LV to RV stroke volume ratio um, also had a greater chance of success. And along with that, those patients that had an increased mitral valve to tricuspid valve inflow flow ratio, also that was associated with successful uh, conversion. On the echo side, uh, LV and diastolic volume was also predictive of, uh, of transplant-free biventricular survival. So with each of those parameters that I just went through, we did an ROC and survival analysis. Um, and with that, we were able to identify cutoff parameters for each of those that both that either optimize sensitivity uh, for predicting su successful conversion or optimize specificity. Um, and then we could apply those going forward in terms of decision making. The other thing I wanted to touch on with this study is the MRI assessment of fibrosis using the late gadolinium enhancement technique. 15 of those 22 patients had late gadolinium enhancement. And you can see a typical example here. Uh, the bright area here in the subendocardium is the fibrotic region in the short axis and the long axis. Now, um, when we looked at this, uh, L, uh, having that pattern, that uh, endocardial fibroelastosis, wasn't associated with transplant-free biventricular survival. However, interpretation of this result is confounded by the fact that with their conversion surgery, all 15 of the patients had EFE resection. So we really don't know what would have happened if it hadn't been resected at the time of the operation. All right, let me now just turn to the other anatomic group in our study. That's the right dominant atrioventricular canal group. You can see a representative example up here on the screen, a four-chamber view. You can see the common AV valve, uh, uh, mostly uh, uh, filling the right ventricle here, and this hypoplastic left ventricle that doesn't quite make it to the apex. Similarly, you can appreciate this in the short axis views as well. So in this group, we had 10 patients. The median age at their CMR study, right before their biventricular conversion procedure, was six months. Uh, you can see this group is a younger group than uh, the uh, small left heart uh, group. Um, and that their circulation at the time of CMR also had a range of uh, different types of palliations. There were two patients who had undergone a stage one, three who had, had a pulmonary artery band, and five who had undergone a bidirectional glen. So in terms of their surgical results, all had a successful biventricular repair at the time of hospital discharge. Patients were then followed for a median uh, post-op period of 28 months. Over that follow-up time, there was one late death that was in a 12-month-old, uh, sorry, that was 12 months post-op in a patient with mitral stenosis and left ventricular outflow tract obstruction who passed away during a respiratory illness. There was one other patient who underwent mitral valve replacement, 
and all the surviving patients um, at last follow-up were known to have a right ventricular pressure less than one-half systemic. So since we only had 10 patients, this was too small a sample size um, to come up and analyze for predictors of success. However, um, it's interesting to note the range of the left ventricular end diastolic volumes went all the way down to 22 mLs per meter squared, and the LV to RV uh, stroke volume range, uh, ratio, the lower end of that range went down to 0.19, just giving you a sense of what might be feasible. So in the last portion of this discussion, I just want to uh, share a case with you to show you how you can potentially use these uh, parameters uh, with your decision making. This is a two and a half year old with mitral and aortic stenosis who underwent a stage one with an RV to PA conduit uh, and then had the conduit taken down and underwent their bi-directional Glenn procedure. They referred to us at two and a half years of age for consideration of uh, left ventricular recruitment with the hope that you'd get to a biventricular repair. So here you can see the patient's four chamber and short axis images. Um, you can see there's mitral valve hypoplasia the LV is uh, narrow and doesn't make it all the way to the apex of the heart. And you can also appreciate in short axis that the left, ventric left ventricle is quite hypoplastic. Um, here are some of the uh, MRI data regarding uh, looking at the inflow parameters. I think you can appreciate uh, that uh, just even qualitatively that there's much more tricuspid valve inflow than there is mitral inflow here. Um, in addition, a uh, patient had late gadolinium enhancement imaging, and here it's important to note that there is no late gadolinium enhancement in this patient. Um, there's just normal appearing myocardium by the late gadolinium enhancement technique. So uh, we reviewed this information, and uh, what you see in this chart are the patient's values for those three CMR parameters that we uh, ha uh, uh, found in our study to be predictive. You can see their value, and you can see the threshold values that were established uh, for the best specificity. Um, and as you go through each of those parameters, you see none of them meet those threshold values in terms of them being acceptable for consideration of biventricular conversion. So along with review of the echo data and the cath data, um, rather than doing a biventricular conversion at that point, we did a series of procedures um, uh, with in one operation to help recruit the left side of the heart. Specifically, the patient underwent placement of a Blalock-Tausig shunt, atrial septal defect restriction, and aortic valvuloplasty. Uh, patient then went home, uh, and then uh, 12 months later, they came back for a reassessment. And I'll share with you the MRI results um, comparing uh, uh, the uh, MRI pictures uh, before the recruitment procedure and those uh, 12 months after the recruitment procedure. So again, on the top row, you have uh, the MRI data that I showed you earlier from before the recruitment procedure. Here is 12 months after the recruitment procedure. You can see in the four-chamber view as well as a short-axis view, you can just get the sense clearly that the LV size has increased, the mitral annulus diameter has increased, and then just qualitatively looking at the inflow, you can see there's better mitral valve inflow. So if we go forward and take a look, what I'm showing you here in the table is uh, the pre-recruitment numbers, and then 12 months after that procedure, uh, the parameters for that, and then again, the same threshold values that I showed you before. And if you start going through those, you can see those now reach the acceptable uh, range uh, on all those parameters. 
but we don't just rely on the MRI data alone. We reviewed the cath and the echo data as well. Um, and with that, we made the decision um, to go ahead and uh, go ahead and advance and uh, proceed with a biventricular uh, conversion procedure, which included a ROS procedure. Um, and in two and a half years of follow-up after that, there have been no subsequent cardiac procedures. Uh, so to summarize, the CMR parameters can guide decision-making regarding one versus two ventricle repairs. It can also help assess the impact of procedures that are designed to rehabilitate the small left ventricle and left heart. And we're certainly still working on refining our selection criteria for this type of procedure, um, and it's an ongoing area of research. Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.